Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Well, so at this point, it is our custom to introduce ourselves. Um, my name is Henry. Well, I'm Brian. Marty. Matthew. My name is Matthew. Jerry. Jeff. Jeremy. Jim. Tony. Jim. My name is Cass. Bob. Brian. And I have the privilege of introducing today's speaker, Dale Borglum. Uh, Dale Borglum founded and directed the Hanuman Foundation Dying Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the first residential facility in the United States to support conscious dying. Working with Ram Das and Stephen Levine, Dale helped found the conscious dying movement in the West. He has been the executive director of the Living Dying Project in Santa Fe and since 1986 in the San Francisco Bay Area. He is the co-author with Ram Das, Daniel Goldman, and Dwarka Bonner of Journey of Awakening, a Meditator's Guidebook by Bantam Books, and has taught meditation since 1974. Dale lectures and gives workshops on the topics of meditation, healing, spiritual support for those with life-threatening illnesses, and on caregiving as a spiritual practice. He has taught with Ram Das, Stephen Levine, Joan Halifax, Robert Thurman, Joanna Macy, Jack Cornfield, Annie Lamott, Jai Utal, and many others. He has a doctorate degree from Stanford University. And his website is livingdying.org. So, Dale, all yours. So, it's wonderful to be back and see so many familiar faces. I think I've been seeing uh, you guys for probably 10 years now, once a year. Today, I'd like to talk about anxiety and emptiness and how working with anxiety can be the gateway to a full appreciation and experience of emptiness, which is a necessary experience for conscious living and particularly for conscious dying. Uh, a few months ago, I was lying in bed one night and I could tell I wasn't going to be able to go to sleep. My energy was a little bit disorganized. There wasn't anything particular I was worried about, but I could just feel I felt some, uh, discombobulated energy. I felt a little bit anxious for no apparent reason. So instead of reaching for an herbal remedy or for some melatonin or something, I thought, why don't I just lie here and really feel the anxiety? What does it feel like in my body? And as I did that over the course of maybe 45 minutes or so, it began to dissipate. I began to feel this sense of spaciousness, of emptiness, to the point where there was just a very few thoughts arising. The thoughts were clearly based in this delusion that I am thinking, and even that disappeared, and I couldn't even think anymore. And it was really revelatory that anxiety seemed to be this fundamental gateway to other conflicting emotions that are often covered up by anxiety. And by being with the anxiety, it really revealed the nature of things in a very direct and wonderful way. Uh, some, some of my teachers have said that when we're on the spiritual path, we become even more anxious because we're letting go of who we think we are. So that being a spiritual warrior, if you will, 
is an anxious path. It's it's who we think we are is always dissolving, is all always changing into the next thing. And to me, anxiety has been a, a difficult experience, and I think for most people, because it's so constant that there's no contrast. We don't even notice that it's there. It's kind of like the bass line in a quartet, a jazz quartet, a string quartet, that you hear the melody, you're listening to the saxophone or the violin or whatever it might be, but you're not really paying attention to the anxiety because it's always there. Freud said anxiety is useful because it gets us to act. But I would suggest there's a real difference between acting because we feel anxious and acting because we feel whole and rich and full. So uh, how do we really work with this anxiety and why is it the gateway to to uh, a true understanding of emptiness? The great philosopher Yogi Berra said that when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> At least a couple people left. That's a good sign. <laughs> okay. So what is emptiness and why is it so important? Emptiness is often misunderstood. I'm sure that almost everybody in this room has spent time listening to talks about or studying the Heart Sutra where Buddha said, Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, form is none other than emptiness, emptiness is none other than form. The Christian theologian Meister Eckhart said, when the mind is empty of things, it is full of God. When it is full of things, it is empty of God. They're really saying the same kind of thing here. But the sense of emptiness is often misunderstood as nothingness, which is very daunting and not very friendly. Emptiness is really a way of perceiving things. Uh, it's a, a way of beginning to have a much more clear relationship with who we are. Reality is very uncomplicated. Delusion is very complicated, right? So we can understand emptiness, then we need to learn to experience it, and then to stabilize it, to live in that place where we're perceiving whatever it is that might be arising as empty in nature, particularly our sense of self. So it does seem ridiculous to think that I am empty. I mean, clearly that's ridiculous. I'm here in Fairfax, you're where, wherever you are. But when we think of ourselves or arising experience as real in the sense of there's a a solid eye, there's an actually a me here. Uh, that's the delusion that causes all of suffering. In one of uh, the Buddhist sutras, it says, when there is grasping itself, discrimination between self and others arises. Emotions and afflictions then follow. <laughs> Very direct. Emotions and afflictions then follow. So it's essential that we distinguish between the self that exists conventionally and the self that doesn't exist at all, as it is our grasping at the non-existent self that, as I said, is the source of all suffering. So in our own day-to-day -day intuitions, when we're practicing, when we're just living our lives, we have this natural and legitimate sense of self that thinks, I'm cultivating bodhicitta, I'm meditating, I'm doing this or that, but a problem arises when the sense of self is, is too extreme, that we start to think it's independent and autonomous, and it's not. Through meditative analytical investigation, we can come to recognize that the root of all afflictions lies in our strong but mistaken clinging to what we perceive as an inherently real self. So, what I'm suggesting here is that by really beginning to feel this empty, this anxiety that's almost always there, that that is a way of 
beginning to come into direct relationship with the, the, uh, the true nature of self, the empty nature of self. The Dalai Lama says, a true understanding of emptiness, of any inherent existence, must touch on the very manner in which we intuitively perceive things. Like when we say, this form, this material object, we feel as if our perception of the object before us is true, as if there is something that this term material object refers to, as if the perception we have somehow represents what is truly there in front of us. A correct understanding of emptiness must reach that level of perception so that we no longer cling to any notion of objective, inherent reality. So that clearly in the West, the collective delusion, and in some ways the whole world has become the West, the collective delusion is that there is a a separate objective external reality and that we are separate perceiving devices, human beings, sentient beings, perceiving the solid reality. And what ancient Buddhist and Hindu tantric wisdom says is that that's backwards, that there's one consciousness flowing through its individual filters creating form. Emptiness is form and form is emptiness. That we're, we're creating form through an understanding of emptiness, through consciousness itself. So it's really how we perceive our experience. If you had a dream last night, that seemed very, very real, but it was a dream. My Guru Maharaji, somebody said, is this world real? He said, it's completely real. It's completely a dream. And it's both at the same time. Okay, so that covers all the bases. So let's look then at how and uh, investigating anxiety can lead us to this direct perception of our true nature. We clearly see anxiety when we watch the wandering mind. Why is the wine mon- why is the mind wandering all the time. I've been at long meditation retreats. My mind gets very, very still. And then again and again, thoughts come, awareness of thoughts, thoughts dissipate, empty, spacious mind for a while, thoughts keep coming back. And I really investigated why do those thoughts keep coming back when I'm feeling so spacious, when the mind is so very clear. And what what really came to me was that right before thinking is anxiety, that it's too spacious, that the the separate delusional self is getting very uncomfortable and it wants to reify itself. Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. The ego believes that. If I keep thinking, then at least I know I exist. So in, in Buddhism, there's there's two levels of ego, two levels of how we suffer. The first one is the conventional, I'm suffering because of uh, early childhood conditioning. I go to a therapist, I go to a body worker, and that helps deal with that kind of suffering. If I do enough therapy, I won't have so much of that kind of suffering. The other level of suffering is the suffering that arises when we believe in a separate self. So one could do a lot of therapy and not have much of the first kind of suffering, but still really believe in I'm a separate me, look at how unneurotic I am. On the other hand, there are a lot of meditators who can go into this feeling of emptiness and not cling so much to a separate self, but they're still pretty neurotic. So ideally, we work with both levels of suffering, but it's very, very useful to be able to distinguish between the two of them. It's very useful to be able to see the difference between the suffering that's arising because I have this conditioning from long ago versus I believe I'm believe i a separate self. So embracing anxiety. Fundamentally, all emotions 
are healing messages. And the healing message of anxiety is take a look at who you really are. You're feeling anxious because you're living in this delusion. When we embrace anxiety, it begins to lessen self-absorption. The uh, Christian theologian Richard Rohr says, all spiritual practice is about how we deal with our pain. And anxiety is this fundamental pain of living in the delusion of separateness. So it often takes a lot of practice to equate a complete letting go or going beyond anxiety with comfort because we're learning to be comfortable without a ground to stand on, without a fixed place to perceive reality. We're, we're, we're pointing ourselves toward living without any boundaries or barriers at all. Suzuki Roshi said, life is like getting out, a sh- getting on a ship that's about to set sail out into the ocean and sink. We're, we're on that journey where we know, we know the ship is going to sink, but we have to get on it anyway. <laughs> Okay, so is it possible even right now to feel anxiety in a somatic sense? Uh, to me, the first step is letting go of trying to understand what I'm feeling, thinking about it. What is the trigger that's causing me to feel what I'm feeling? But can I, in this moment, feel what it's like somatically? And for me, and I think for almost everybody, this sense of anxiety leads to some tension in the shoulders. Shoulders have the word should in them. And a a tightness in the lower belly. Uh, So that the first step is can we feel that? Not in the sense I've got to fix it or do something about it, but can I really lean into the feeling of anxiety? Can I feel the sense of uh, pulling back from who I really am? What does it feel like in your body right now? Does, does the mind have a tendency to wander? Is there some sense of dis-ease in the body? And usually when we feel disease, we fixate, as I said, on the trigger. We want to fix what's out there or blame what's out there, the weather, the traffic, the politicians, whatever it might be, instead of here's what it feels like to be afraid. Here's what it feels like to be anxious. Then the next step is, is it possible to feel compassion for the part of you who has been anxious? Can we let the heart be spacious, even though we're feeling anxiety? And finally, then, the, the tantric understanding that even anxiety is a reflection of the sacred reality. It's beyond good and bad, pure and impure. So finding this direct relationship with anxiety I've been finding allows me on a, on a moment to moment basis to keep coming back to who I think I am, how I get lost in holding on to the false self. Studies have shown, this is no big surprise to anybody, that mindfulness leads to a greater sense of well-being. If you feel mindful, you sleep better, you have better relationships, etc. And then not so long ago, Further studies show that if you add compassion, that there's a much quicker movement into well-being. But recently, right before the the pandemic, some researchers at Derby University in the UK found that if you meditate on emptiness, you have 24% fewer negative feelings than if just working with mindfulness itself. So that meditating on, uh, meditating on emptiness in this way is essentially 
an analytic meditation of examining who's meditating, who am I, who do I think I am? Is there an actual solid self here? And that that seems to even be a uh, more direct path to awakening than just mindfulness. Certainly mindfulness will eventually bring you there. But uh, being a basically somebody who likes to find all the shortcuts I can, I like the idea that this is a, a sort of a shortcut to finding out uh, what's going on here. So that it, it's not really the, the path to enlightenment, it's the path of enlightenment, that by working with anxiety, we see who we are. It's not a place to get to. And then I would like to apply what we're talking about here to conscious living, conscious dying. Uh, today's Sunday, nine days ago, a very dear friend of mine, Peter Kelsey, died in, in Boulder, Colorado. I was actually at his, his, uh, house, uh, for about a week before he died. And he's somebody who's been on the board of directors of the Living Dying Project. He's somebody who became a very dear friend of mine in a really short amount of time. And as I was guiding him and we were just hanging out together, me and him and his family, it was so interesting, so provocative, so poignant to watch how Peter, but particularly the family members, were going in and out of holding on to, please, please don't die, please don't leave us. And then on the other hand, this relaxing into openness, relaxing into openness and back and forth. So let me talk just a little bit about conscious dying and how what we've just been talking about leads to conscious dying. In fact, what is fully conscious dying? First of all, if we're dying and we're not conscious at all, unconscious dying is being lost in emotions. I'm becoming the emotion. The, the sky of my mind is bounded by a window frame that's really small. So that I am, I am the anger. I am the fear. In English, we say, for instance, I am afraid. In Spanish, yo tengo miedo. I have fear. In Tibetan, fear is here. So very often when people are approaching death, when somebody's family member is approaching death, fear, anger, frustration arises and to the extent we're caught, this is my emotion, I am I am the emotion, uh, that's not a very healthy, transformative way to be approaching death. Secondly, the first stage of conscious dying, can we be mindful? Can we be mindful of our emotions, mindful of our resistance? And to the extent we can do that, we're, we're bringing embodied mindfulness, we're, we're paying attention, uh, in a, in an open kind of way to that extent, then we won't be caught in the emotions. The next stage is bringing compassion. Can, can we really have compassion for the part of our body that might kill us? It's not an easy thing to do for sure. And, uh, finally then this, this tantric stage of relating to the emotions of as healing messages rather than something that needs to be fixed. So we're, we're making this transformation of I'm practicing because I want to die well. I don't want to die poorly. I don't want to die in fear to practicing in richness that whatever's going on, I can open my heart to it, particularly having an embodied mindfulness, even when somebody's on their deathbed, being grounded, being centered, being embodied is the support for then being able to open the heart. Imagine dying with an open heart. Imagine dying with a closed heart. And to die with an open heart, very often for almost everybody, requires having an embodied mindfulness. Because if, if, if we're not in our body, if we haven't the support of the lower belly, the hara, the dantian, the, the heart will stay open only when we feel supported by the environment. And when somebody's dying, very often the environment does not seem particularly supportive, of course. So embodied mindfulness leading to compassion, compassionate relationship with what's going on, 
and then this tantric understanding. But then finally, fully conscious dying comes out of the first part of what we've been talking about here, which is non-duality, of realizing that there isn't a separate self, there isn't a separate external reality in the conventional sense. Yes, certainly when I hold up my my tea mug here, it's a real thing, and if I put it down, you can hear the sound of it going on my desk. At the same time, from the standpoint of form is emptiness, emptiness is form, it's not real in the way that the mind usually thinks about it, and that our society collectively is lost in the delusion of what is real and what is not. So that we die into non-duality, we die into pure consciousness, pure awareness. And it is this fundamental anxiety that very often is what is keeping us from surrendering into that sense of openness. Instead of listening to that baseline in the quartet, we're always caught up in all the content of experience. Content is always changing. What is it that doesn't change? What is it that's there? Unchanging, birthless, deathless, Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Okay, so why don't we, then we have maybe about 20 minutes for questions, comments, conversation. Why don't we jump into that? I'm curious if you or the Institute have a perspective on the use of morphine or other drugs in the dying process as it relates to conscious dying. Right. Okay. So, my friend Peter that I was just mentioning, he had uh, long-term metastatic prostate cancer. His, his, his pelvis was broken, his femur was broken, his tailbone was broken. He, he was in an incredible amount of pain. Uh, just getting up out of his wheelchair, getting into bed was excruciatingly painful. Taking huge doses of Oxycontin and, uh, hydrocodone. I don't know. I may be getting the names wrong here. So, uh, pain doesn't lead to suffering. Cancer doesn't lead to suffering. Resistance to pain, resistance to pain, uh, Cancer is what causes suffering. So it's very important to distinguish between suffering and causes of suffering. And my experience with so many people has been use meditation as much as you can for fear of pain and use medication for pain. And the medical community, they're getting a lot better, but there still is the difficulty of conflating pain and fear of pain. And what's, what's often being medicated is, is the fear rather than the pain itself. So that if there is so much pain that somebody is resisting, I can't deal with, I'm tightening, I'm tightening, then take more medication. But it's a shame to be overly medicated because that often leads then to a diminishment of consciousness, right? So, Enough medication so you can relax, be present, but not so much that you're interfering unnecessarily with consciousness. Uh, I went to the dentist a couple of years ago. I had some decay under a crown. So the dentist said, I'm going to take the crown off. I'm going to drill on your live nerve there. And then I'll put a temporary filling on there. You come back in a week and we'll put the new crown on. And I'm going to give you a shot. I said, I don't want the shot. She said, it's going to hurt. I said, I know. She said, it's really going to hurt. I said, it's fine. It'll only be 60, 90 seconds. I'll just relax. So she called in her husband, who is a bigger dentist, right? And he said, it's really going to hurt. And I said, please, I just, it's fine. And for 90 seconds, there were very unpleasant sensations. And I just laid back. I had the big advantage of knowing it was going to be done really soon. That's a very big advantage. Okay, but I didn't suffer at all, right? So that I've often experienced people dying with physical pain, 
have an easier time dying than people that don't have pain or people that have something like nausea that keep, keeps drawing them back to the body. Is it, is it possible to use your relationship with unpleasant sensation? Even right now as we're talking, you've been on your butt, on a chair, on a cushion, on the floor, wherever you are for over an hour, maybe. And maybe there's some discomfort in the body. Can you be with that without resisting, without turning it into suffering? And to the, to the extent that we're really mindful of sensations and have a, a, a spacious relationship with them, they often don't turn into suffering. They often uh, dissolve. Sometimes you keep feeling them. It's not like we're relating to them to make them go away because right off the bat then we're setting it up as a confrontational event. But in the moment where you're feeling those sensations, that is your life. That is your experience. Uh, my other experience is that if people are taking morphine, it really interferes with consciousness for a short amount of time, maybe for a week or 10 days. And then people, the body starts getting used to it. And one can get quite cogent even when you're taking a great deal of morphine. So like my friend Peter, uh, he slept a lot, but when he was awake, he was very, very alert on, up until the last few days of his life. Uh, Tom? Dale, thank you so much for, uh, wow, what a really rich, rich talk. Um, and so timely for me. Um, um, I've recently connected with anxiety. So I'm having a heart procedure on Tuesday. Uh, they're just going to do an ablation because I've had atrial fibrillation and tachycardia. And as I sat with it, while this is, occurs, you know, when it arises in me, I've come to realize that there's an emotion that I feel in my heart before anything actually happens, before the heart gets out of sync or any of this stuff. And I, I started to observe it and connect with it, and I realized that it is anxiety. Like there is some anxiety that is arising in me, and then the heart I thought it was the other way around. I thought, oh, I'm anxious because I feel my heart doing this thing. But I came to realize it's actually the anxiety, emotion comes up, and then instantly the heart reacts. Right. Um, and so what you said about these are healing messages, you know, anxiety is a healing message. It's telling me something. Um, and so I'm trying to connect with that. Uh, the surgery is going to go forward because I really think that atrial fibrillation is not something you just toy around with. But I guess my question is, or I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what's going through my mind right now is, is this procedure going to disconnect me from these messages? You know? Um, yeah, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, if your if your recent understanding is correct that the anxiety precedes the symptoms, uh, making the symptoms go away doesn't mean the anxiety is going to go away. You can you can have anxiety without having AFib, right? So there, there's still this fundamental anxiety coming from the fundamental delusion of I'm not who I think I am, <laughs> right? So, like, if if they hook you up to a functional MRI machine and ask you to think about I, all these different places in the brain light up. There's not one I center in the brain. And, th and they ask you to think about not I, all these other places interspersed with the first set light up. So that the I is a concept. It's a very useful concept. It's a useful tool. The ego is a verb. It's something that is useful, but we tend to grab onto it in a way that causes a lot of suffering. And, uh, I don't know how old you are, but you're, you're an older person, shall we say, and the body's saying, how much longer am I going to be around? Here's something you really ought to pay attention to, right? I mean, uh, are you, are you the body that's going to die? Are you the body that has the heart that's doing these 
crazy dances instead of the usual dances, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I just turned 81, hard to believe. I've got a 21-year-old son who's off in Japan right now as we speak. But anyway, uh, and almost every client I work with is significantly younger than I am. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, I've done all these preparatory practices. I've been doing so much bodhicitta, so much compassion practice, so much mindfulness practice. When am I going to look at directly who I am, what's going on here? Maybe now is the time. And maybe now is the time for you to ask, who is it that's having AFib? (laughs) Who is it that, uh, who, who is it that's being anxious? And, uh, is it possible right now, instead of being caught up in, I am experiencing the content, I'm hearing Dale's words, isn't that interesting or isn't that not interesting, depending on your viewpoint, but that what's actually going on right now is there is this unchanging, pure awareness that is so familiar so ever present that we don't even notice it because there's no contrast because it's always there and we're lost in the content and the, and being lost in it creates this fundamental anxiety, right? So just to take short bursts of time, not like a 20 minute meditation or 40 minute meditation, but for a minute or two, can you, can you have awareness watching awareness nature of mind rather than fixating on the, on, on the content of experience. So there's, there could be a sentence, the seer is seeing the scene. And in Vipassana, we let go of attachment to the, the scene, the, the content. We're aware of mindful of our relationship with the content. And then when we get to deeper stages of practice, we let go of the subject. All that's left is seeing. It's not I'm seeing that. Just seeing is going on. But that's very challenging to the ego because it's not existing in that moment. It's annihilated. It's radical surrender beyond on the ego. And, of course, your heart's going to say, wait a minute. (laughs) It's like, I don't like this, right? And according to, like, Ramana Maharshi, for instance, the seat of the soul, this I, the, the true I is located in the heart center. And uh, so, I mean, in a way, what you're going through is challenging. On another way, it's a fundamental confrontation with the meaning of life, if you will. And I, I wish you all the best on Tuesday. Thank you so much, Dale. Very helpful. And Rich. Sure. Um, I am 71, by the way, and I make no apology for that, especially in the LGBTQ plus community. So, Dale, you are the old 61, if I may express that. Um, Dale, please hear me out. And I mean the following question most respectfully, kind of, but you're not implying that compassionate practicing Buddhists should start going to the dentist and not take Novocaine, are you? Or cancer patients in extreme pain? should not take pain-relieving medications? Did I mishear you? Could you clarify that, please, kind sir? <laughs> I, I'm not suggesting that at all. I mean, you can do whatever you want to do. I'm saying that I uh, I did a lot of meditation with this guy, Goenka, who you work very in a very subtle way with sensations. And I can be with very uh, intensive sensations without reacting to them. I don't like putting unnecessarily unnecessary chemicals in my body. And I don't like having that thing where you can hardly talk for the rest of the afternoon if I don't need it. So I prefer on a personal basis to have 90 seconds of intense, unpleasant sensation to chemicals in my body that are challenging my liver. And, and, uh, having that uncomfortable numbness for a few hours afterward, right? And I'm not saying I'm, I'm stronger or better than anybody else. I'm a complete, let me not use too, uh, too, I almost use a very bad word there, but 
uh, there are certain like emotions that get me every time. So, I mean, I'm really good with sensation, not so good with some other emotions, maybe like intimacy. Is that my specialty? I find I'm, I'm in a relationship now for the first time in 40 years. <laughs> okay. So I guess that's maybe a step in the right direction. But, uh, what I said to the very first questioner, K, Kai, however you, K is that, that how you pronounce your name? Anyway, uh, that whole conversation about pain was just the way we're talking to Tom about his AFib, that whatever's going on in your body, whatever's going on in your mind, but particularly in your body, is an opportunity to investigate who you are and what's going on. And if you choose to do that by taking drugs or not t- taking drugs, then that's completely up to you. I am not one who's anti-drug. I assure you of that. There have been more psychedelics put into this body than <laughs> probably most people in the room here, right? So it's like, it, it's not some heroic thing that you shouldn't do that. Uh does that answer? Yes, uh, this is all subsumed under the hashtag keeping it real. Thank you yeah. very much, sir. Okay, you're welcome, sir. <laughs> Nobody's called me that in a very long time. It's kind of daunting, but I'll do my best. Okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, Gandhi wrote his autobiography called My Experiments with Truth. Let's get real. It's, so it's like every moment is is a an experiment. Are we curious about what's going on? Are we really looking at who I am and what's, what's my relationship with, with reality and content? Or are we just going through the motions kind of automatically? When I used to live back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I went to a, a Vipassana retreat with Jack and Joseph, uh, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein out in Western Massachusetts somewhere. And when we were driving back, me and my friends, we stopped at a Howard Johnson's restaurant right after this, like really intensive retreat. And we went into the Howard Johnson's and it was like being in this surreal Italian movie that it was clear that everybody, it seemed, it seemed like everybody was asleep. It was like a zombie movie, right? Everybody was, everybody was, uh, conditioned response. If you had a big enough computer, you could say, She's going to order the Cobb salad and he's going to order the fish of the day. And I mean, that was all conditioned that nobody was really present. It was just automatic response, conditioned response. And whether we get into free will exist or it doesn't, that's a whole other conversation here. But whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, or fit or lack of pain, each moment is potentially this exploration of who we are and what it is that's actually going on. Good relationships, bad relationships, right? Good politicians, bad politicians out there. I mean, I, Trump might be president, pull the plug on the war in Ukraine. Who knows what's going to happen, right? He Maybe he'll be president from a federal penitentiary. Wouldn't that be interesting? Okay. Uh, we have uh, uh, w- one question from Jim here in the room. Bill, it's great to hear you again. Thank you for all your years of wonderful teaching. Um, I just returned from a uh, class college reunion. Okay. We Eighteen, and we're now we're all seventy-five. Um, the connections are passionate. Um, the affection is, is so strong over, over the years. And we're all falling apart. People look, you know, <laughs> we don't, there's no hiding our ages anymore. But the consistency of the personal luminosity is stunningly, um, touching. We're all, in some ways, at some ground level, we experience each other as the same. Mm-hmm. Are we deluding ourselves? I mean, uh, <laughs> we probably are deluding ourselves right and left, but no more in that situation than the other ones. Ramdas had this line. He said, when a bunch of old people get together, they have the, they have the 
organ recital, which is maybe what you. <laughs> so, so I mean, it it could be that uh, Tom is going in for his procedure, and you 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 are at your reunion, and people are getting older and falling apart. But what is it that hasn't changed? What is it that doesn't die? When Ramana Maharshi was dying, his devotee said, please don't leave us. Please don't leave us. We love you so much. He said, leave you. Where could I go? <laughs> right? So if, in fact, you think that you're this body and that's all you are, then death is incredibly bad news. Right? <laughs> and, but the fact that the, the the bodies are aging gradually and falling apart, hopefully gradually, can lead us to investigate more deeply and understand that we that we have a body but we aren't the body we have a mind but we aren't the mind uh the western worldview is that the brain creates the mind creates reality right and uh the western medical model is based on that whereas tantric wisdom which has recently been mathematically proven by quantum mechanics. I mean, three guys just got the Nobel Prize in physics for quantum entanglement, which is basically saying there's only one thing. <laughs> there's just one. Maharaji kept saying, all one, it's only one thing. And that this one thing then, it doesn't die. I mean, it, 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 it's, uh, it's all form, it's all matter, it's all energy. And thinking that we're the disintegrating body, of course, is going to be quite upsetting to the ego structure. Trunko Rinpoche said that until you come into intimate contact with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of being a dilettante. And I really believe that there's no stronger spiritual practice for this weird day and age that we live in than an inner contemplative practice combined with an outer relationship with death. Like going to college reunions. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that old saying that, you know, the purpose of old friends is to always see you as being young. That <laughs> was... Anyway, <laughs> it's relaxing. You're welcome. Well, yeah, I think we're out of time for further questions at this point. Do you ever want to say anything further? Uh, let me give myself a plug. We have a, a great website, livingdying.org. It's the most complete site on the internet for conscious dying. There's a lot of free material there. I have an every other Saturday Zoom group that has 670 people in it, uh, free of charge, spiritual support group. The Living Dying Project has free of charge online uh, support groups for conscious dying, conscious caregiving, and conscious grief support. Uh, I have an online training program course that uh, has a live component to it that goes into what we've been talking about here in much greater depth. Uh, we're always looking for new clients. If you know anybody who has a life-threatening illness or somebody that's grieving that would like some free-of-charge support from trained meditators, uh, go to our website, and on the bottom of every page is our email address and our phone number. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, uh, do we have any announcements? We have most time. I don't have any key cards, so here we go. Uh, after this assembly, uh, there is uh, treats and tea, so we can continue our community. Outside, uh, with the teacups, when you're finished, just put them in, in the sink, and I'll clean them, put them away. 
I will be bringing around a Donable, and Donna being the heartfelt gift back into the community, which helps support not only our speakers, but this wonderful, um, the San Francisco Buddhist Center, who has created this space for us that we need, and a variety of services. Hopefully, at one point, we'll go back to the dinner at Goodlockin Street and the um, letters, newsletters that we send out to prisoners as well as other it's a little late now, but that's practically it. At the end of the tea, around twelve thirty, people collect uh near the door, see so to go and continue on with our community at brunch. So thank you. And check them all. Yeah, check them all. Yeah. <laughs> Any other announcements? Okay, uh, Dale, uh, uh, would you like to lead us in a dedication of merit, or uh, would you rather we do our own? Uh, why don't you do your traditional one, please? Okay. Mm. I don't have a copy of it. Wait, I do have it. Sorry. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you, Dale. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please Subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.